Uh, you have captured our hearts, our minds. We want to know you. We want to worship you. We want to see you more clearly through your word. And so we come. And we come regularly, Lord. And we meet often. Because you told us to and that it was good for us. And it stimulates us, Lord. And helps us overcome sin in our life and struggles that we may have. The word of God flushes those things out and teaches us of the great gospel and the forgiveness of our sins and a way to live a life that's pleasing and honoring to you and gives us great joy. And so we gather, and here we are again, Lord. Lord, we thank you that the church gathers around the world. There is a true church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those dedicated to the gospel, not of works of man, but of the finished work of Jesus Christ, and they are gathered today. And they're gathered in every tongue and language and tribe and nation. And all around the world you have your people. And so what a joy it is to know that though we here and our numbers gather at Riverbend, there are churches gathering all over the world to glorify you. Father, we think of those who can't gather today. They are sick or have gone through a procedure or trying to heal, Lord, from some injury or something that's happened, Lord. And, and maybe they've been through treatments, Lord. You know them. You know what's going on. But we miss them and we pray for them this morning. That you would strengthen them. Show your kindness and mercy to them as you are so faithfully do, Lord. Lord, thank you for the children of our church, Lord. We're so grateful for the numbers of children that you bring here. Our opportunity to come along parents and teach them great truths, Lord. We pray that you would bless them and cause them to know you at early ages. Lord, now as we look to your word, we pray that your spirit would open our hearts and minds to its truth. Plunge it deep, Lord. May it not be a surface listening or a surface obedience but may it get to our hearts and may it change our lives each and every day we live for you we pray this in jesus name amen john stott once said this he said our love grows soft if it's not strengthened by truth our love grows soft if it is not strengthened by truth and our truth grows hard if it is not softened by love isn't that interesting what a great statement. John Stott died recently and went home to be with the Lord. But I love that statement. That was one that I've kept with me for quite some time. Our love grows soft if it's not based in the truth of God's word. Your love will get pushed around. Pretty soon you won't even be able to define love as the world is doing. Truth will help you in that. And that's what truth does. But our truth, a truth that we believe in, will grow hard and it will not be kind and it will not be what God wants it to be as we present the gospel to the world if it's not softened by love. And so truth is softened by love. And so the Apostle Paul said we are to speak the truth in love. That's what we do. And that's what God has called us to. And there's only one way to be able to speak that truth in love is to set our hearts on the love of Christ. That's, that's the goal, be captured by the love of Christ. Are you still amazed that he loves you? Are you still amazed that he died for you? Not for the person next to you, praise God, he did. But, but he died for you. He knows you. And he laid his life down for you. Pastor Brian Giaquinto put up a quote this week. He posted this. and It was a man by, uh, his name is Robert Murray McShane. He was a great uh, influence on J.C. Ryle in the 1800s. He said this, Take one good look at your heart and then 10,000 looks at Christ. I thought that was a great quote. 
I think so often we are very introspective. We are always looking at ourselves, always thinking about ourselves, always, in a sense, consumed with ourselves, right? But here, this great Scottish preacher of the 1800s reminds us, yes, we take a look at our hearts. Yes, we know that there are some problems there, isn't there, right? Even as saved individuals, we battle our heart's desire sometimes. But the way to overcome that is we look to the heart of Christ. We, we see his glory and his persons and his, and his love for us, and that overcomes those struggles in our heart and causes us to grow towards him. D.A. Carson recently said this. He says, there's nothing that inspires our gratitude and our awe more than the love shown by the eternal son of God on the cross. You want to be inspired? You want to be encouraged? Think of the cross. Go to the cross. Think of what he did for you, that he died for your sins and has given you freedom from all the debt that those sins would accure. I spent a little time in Romans 8 this week just trying to meditate on that depth of that passage. Verse 35 says this way, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? What a great statement to start out that section in the passage. Who in the world can overcome Christ and separate you from his love? The rhetorical question is no one, right? But yet he goes on. He says, so tribulation. Some of you are going through tribulations. Some of you are going through distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword. And he quotes Psalm 44. Sometimes we're being put to death all, time, all day long. We're like sheep that have gone to, gone to the slaughter. But then he comes back and he says, but in all these things, we are overwhelmingly conquerors through him who what? Loves us. That's it. His love continues to strengthen us. Paul says, look, I'm convinced that there's neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's the key. And so what I began to do is I began to think about this 1 Corinthians passage in 13 we are if you're visiting with us or you're with us we have been teaching our way through the book of first corinthians and last week i taught it in its flow of context with the struggles that the church was going in going through in first corinthians their struggles with desire for fame and and exalted gifts and and they were just missing it, and they'd lost the love for one another, and there was great factions and divisions within the church, and there was all kinds of problems, just like many churches have today, because of pride. And in the middle of all of that, Paul sets down really this doctrine of love to help the church understand this is what you're after, not after those temporary things that will all fade away someday when we go to be with our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I taught that last week within its context, within the struggles that the church was going through then and what the church goes through now. But the more I look at this passage and the more I studied it, the more I say, you know, there's only one person that actually can ever fulfill this text. Who is that? It's Jesus Christ. In fact, many of my Bibles, uh, your title might say the excellence of love, and, and I'll write in there, only Christ. Because only he really fulfills this now. We someday will, but we press on towards that. But Christ fulfills this. And so what I set in my uh, mind as I began to study this passage is, one, I want to go through this text like I did last week, understand it in context of the church and what was going on. But then I want to come back and preach Christ out of it. And so what I did this week 
as I studied many hours, and I, I was overwhelmed as I looked at each statement. I took apart the text, statement by statement, and applied it to Christ. Phrase after phrase, understanding the fulfillment of that phrase in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this morning, my goal is to set your heart ablaze, if I can, with a love for Christ. And I hope that each one of us will be instilled with a, a, a new zeal for the love of the Lord Jesus Christ and know what he has done for us and what he continues to do in his love. And so I pray that you'll follow along with me. I am going to flood you with scripture today. There's no way we can see them all. I'm going to quote tons and tons of scriptures. And I hope you write these down and you go back and look at them and you think about Christ because there, there is no way that I could, uh, I could preach on this for days and days and days because of the depth of the love of Christ. But I tried to pick out verses for each of the statements that would help us understand Jesus in a better way. So this morning, I ask you to buckle up and, and ask the Lord to help you love Jesus more as you hear this. Number one, the love of Christ is our greatest treasure. The love of Christ is our greatest treasure. The first three verses read this way, as Pastor Brian read earlier. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels... But do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Well, here we begin to remind ourselves that they were chasing the, the, the church of Corinthian was chasing things that Paul is trying to, to bring them back to the greater things. And there is no greater truth than treasuring the Lord Jesus Christ. I think this is the mark of Christianity, right? We treasure him above all because without him we have nothing. That's what he said. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so there's a great treasuring for the Lord Jesus Christ. There's an infinite value when we look at the Lord Jesus Christ. If you know you're a sinner, if you've come to the grips that you understand, I don't deserve eternity. I don't deserve the love of God, but God granted it to me. You see the finished work of Jesus Christ as infinitely, uh, uh, infinitely valuable, right? There's no, just, there's no title. There's no amount of whatever you can put on his glory. And so he becomes your greatest treasure. Now, the problem is Christians will migrate away from this. And we'll get caught up in the things that we desire, the things that we want. We'll start to pursue things of self. And that can work its way even into the church. And that's what had happened here. It had worked its way into the church of Corinth. And so they were after supernatural things. They were after things that brought attention to themselves and not to the glory of Christ. And that's why this chapter is dropped in. I once told somebody, I said, Paul had, had rebuked this church so heavily, the only thing he had left to do was say, you don't even understand love, so I'm going to teach you love. And that's what he does here. Interesting enough, at, after Pentecost, man just desired to, to reproduce what happened there. You remember Pentecost. Peter is given this gift to speak in languages not, not a static speech, to speak in languages. And every person there heard the gospel in their own tongue. And 
So ever since Pentecost, people did not catch on to the glory of Christ that was preached in that message. They caught on to a desire to have those kind of gifts, to have that kind of standing in front of people. And so they began to envy Peter and the apostles at times. And yet the word is not some ecstatic speech. It's about languages. They spoke and God in a miraculous way allowed every person to hear the gospel that day in their own tongue and understand it through the work of the Spirit. It was a miraculous event and yet so many have tried to reproduce that. Historians and biblical theologians have all proved that the tongues movement has come from the cult of that day. They were the ones that established that and brought that out. It's, a, it's really a demonic thing. And yet so often people pursue those things. I love Acts chapter 2 when I begin to think about tongues, what the Lord did there, what true tongues are, true languages. This is the birth of the church. And here you see what the purpose of the gospel was. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38 and following, Peter said to them, Repent, each one of you. Be baptized. Be publicly identified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness of your sins and receive the Holy Spirit. That was the goal. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God did such a miraculous work. They did not have a completed Bible. They're preaching out of the Old Testament of the Christ that had come and died and uh, was crucified and died and was resurrected for them. They're preaching that message. They're hearing it in their own ear. And God is doing a miraculous event. And so Peter says, look, after they say, what shall we do? They're, they're overwhelmed with their sin and the death of Christ, which they have their hands in, right? He said, repent. Be identified with the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Receive forgiveness of your sins. It's the greatest gift man can ever have, right? If your sins are not forgiven, you pay for them for eternity. That's, what, that's the difference. There's a difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. It's those who place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that their sins are done away with. Past, present, and future. And this was what was preached there. And, and Peter says, look, be saved from this perverse generation. That's the goal, be saved. And so always tongues was about the, the advancement of the gospel, the languages, right? God did miraculous things. The languages that were spoken were for the advancement of the gospel. And I think that's where you see this agapeo love, right? This unconditional, sacrificial love that was given, spoken their own language. They heard this. And that's the mark of the Trinity. The Trinity is, a, is our God, our Father, the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Spirit who all act in accordance with great love. I got thinking about the Father and this plan for Scott Menez to hear the gospel as a young boy in my own tongue, in my own language, so I could receive him. Well, that's been the Father's plan from the beginning, right? In Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, he told Abraham, look, there's a seed in you, and when he comes, he is going to bring truth. He's going to bring life to all the nations. In him is life. And so the promise of Jesus coming, and, and of course, Abraham is not even a nation yet. <laughs> and, and he goes on for years to not be a nation, but the promise was there. I, I love the prophet Isaiah. God speaking through him says this, Isaiah 49, 6, he says, It's too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. Just saving Israel is not good enough for God, right? Listen to what God says. I will also make you, Jesus Christ, he's talking about the prophecy of Christ that's coming, the seed of Christ is coming to the world. 
I will make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Isn't that beautiful? God's plan has always been to use languages to preach the gospel. Not some ecstatic speech that pulls attention to that person and, or causes confusion and chaos as it often does in some of the crazy things that go on in so-called churches. God loves language. He created the language. We remember Babel, right? They're trying to be their own God in a sense, right? So what does he do? Creates language on the fly. And through those languages, he has preached the gospel down through the millennial, right? Down through time, he has, he has given the gospel through those. Jesus has a great role as well, right? He comes as a servant. He comes and lays down his life for the many that will come to him. And the Bible tells us that he loves the world, and the world has been attracted to him. John gives us a glimpse of a prophecy in the future. Revelation chapter 5, there in verse 9, they're singing a new song. Is looking ahead, is looking into the heavens, right? God's showing John what he's up to. And there, these massive crowds are singing, Worthy are thou to take the book and to break its seal. Nobody can open the seal, right? Only Jesus can. And John's overwhelmed because there's no one that's worthy to break that seal and start to pour forth the judgment onto the earth. And there's one who comes forward from the center of the throne, and it's Jesus. And it says, it's the one whom was slain. Oh, we know who that is. That purchased of God through the blood, listen to this, through his own blood, men from every tribe and tongue and nation. That has always been God's plan to use language, tongues, to preach the gospel, to draw them. I love Revelation 5 because it tells me, hey, we're going to go do missions because God promised to save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So let's get involved in it. Let's see what he's doing around the world. You know, we just studied Jesus' ministry. It's not hard to see. He saves Romans. He saves Canaanites. He saves Jews and Greeks. He saves sick and poor and outcasts and wealthy and thieves and demonics. Person after person, people after people from different, all type, from different places and different economic statuses and, and ethnic diversity. He's drawing people to himself. We just see that in his own ministry. The Spirit then plunges the truth of the gospel into every language of the world. Paul wrote to Titus in chapter 3, verse 4 through 7. He said, when the kindness of our God and Savior and his love, now listen to this, for all mankind, not, not just Americans, not English speakers, right? For Tapoli tribes, for Filipinos, for Africans, for Egyptians, for, well, I mean, all over. He has a love for them. And his goal was to draw them. And then the Bible just says this. He saved us. Us. Meaning people from every walk of life. And so when I go back and I read this passage, if you want to speak in tongues or of men and angels, I think of, oh man, Christ, he penetrates all that, doesn't he? He's the greatest of the speaker of tongues. His, his truth has gone out to every language. No matter where I travel on God's earth, and Gina and I have got to get around the globe a couple times and see places everywhere we go. Most places, I do not know the language. I get a few words down so I can find the bathroom and greet people. <laughs> everywhere I go, God has his people. And they've all heard the message of Christ in their own language. 
They've read the Bible or somebody preached it to them. They, read, they preached the gospel to them and they've been saved. This is what Jesus does. You want to talk about the gift of tongues? That's Jesus. He speaks the language of love through the gospel to every tribe, tongue, and na nation. It's the perfect, life-changing, loving truth that goes to every tongue. That is love. But what about angelic languages? Well, I don't even know if those are even something, right? The charismatic church wants some angelic prayer language. It's crazy. If there is one, only Jesus knows it, right? Because <laughs> he's the one that communicates with the angels. The Bible says in Matthew 26, verse 30, 33, as he's on trial, he says, don't you know that I can appeal to the Father and at once he will put out my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. We know in the Old Testament that one angel wiped out 185 Assyrians in one night. He knows the language. <laughs> the Bible says that in time he will come in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. And one of the things I don't understand is 1 Peter chapter 12 says that the angels look into the gospel. They look that God has been so merciful to people who are sinners, who don't deserve salvation. The angels look into that longing to understand why the Lord is doing that to us, right? And yet, we're down here going, well, I wish I knew that angel language. You got everything you need. Angels are, are overwhelmed that God would be so merciful to us. And yet, people get sidetracked, and it really shows they're not after the love of Christ, they're after the love of themselves. They can draw attention to themselves in some way. This was the great downfall of the Corinth church. And so our great God and Savior is the greatest example of love when it comes to tongues and angels. In fact, think about this. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 12 says that he sends ministering spirits to the aid of those who will inherit salvation. That's what angels do. They, they're at the beck and call of God, and they come and help us and aid us, those who have received salvation. So the gospel of our God and Savior is the most beautiful uh, language and music to the sinner's ear, right? Everything else, if you draw attention, if you're, even if you think you're a gospel preacher and you draw attention to yourself, if you're the center of the message, and whatever you're doing, whether that's one-on-one -on -one or in a pulpit, you are a clanging symbol. Is Jesus the center of that? Christ's love penetrates our lives, doesn't it? And he's the one we boast of. He's the one we speak of. People often ask us about our church and what is our distinctives. Let me tell you our distinctives. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and him crucified, and we are determined to preach him, sing him, live him. That's our goal. You want to know where Riverbend is about? That's who we are. <laughs> That's how we're going out. We're burning that one all the way down because we believe he's the center of all that we do. I think Corinth forgot that message. And they got caught up in these things. But Jesus brings it back. And the more you think about him and his ability to do what we can't do, mean he has the ability to spread his language, the truth of the gospel everywhere, we become worshipers of him. Verse 2 says prophecy. Notice if you have the gift of prophecy. And know all mysteries and all knowledge. And if you have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. I one, I want to just point out that Paul keeps interjecting personal pronouns in there and he keeps using himself as example. That's what he does. He says, look, if I have all this stuff, if I can do all these things, but I don't love, 
I have no ministry. I have, I have nothing. I'm useless to God. Now, here we begin, as we look at this prophecy, I started thinking, well, Lord Jesus, you are the true prophet, priest, and king. That's what the Bible teaches. He's, he's, he's a prophet because he's able to take God's sovereign plan and he's able to fulfill it. I got thinking about this and I thought, well, he prophesied his own death and how he would draw all tongues, all people, and all tribes to himself. In John chapter 12, one of his last messages publicly before he goes to crucifixion, he says this, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. What a statement. What a prophetic statement. Uh, You and I can't do that. You put us on a cross, we just die. We don't save anybody. Christ says, you put me on the cross, you lift me up, I'm drawing people from every walk of life. And he does, right? Thieves and and Roman centurions and and crowds that walk away beating their chest over realizing that this was the Son of God we just crucified. What an amazing thing when we think of there's no greater love than Jesus Christ who laid down his life. Paul talks about mysteries here in this verse. Well, Jesus is the revealer of the mysteries of God. How was God going to save? How was he going to redeem? And certainly there's tons of evidence and teaching of a coming Messiah, Jesus Christ, the seed of the one who would do what no man could do is all through the Old Testament. But still it was, it was dim. It wasn't as clear as then. But then the Lord Jesus Christ comes on scene, right? And the Bible says the word became flesh and the flesh dwelt among us. and We beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And you say, what does that mean? That means Jesus is equal to the Father and he came to prove it and show it. John says, we test about him and cried out. This is the one whom I said would come, right? He's, he's higher rank than I could ever be. He existed before me. He's eternal For of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. But grace and truth are realized through Jesus Christ. How are we going to get to the grace and truth that we need to spend eternity with God? Through Jesus Christ. He's the revealer of that mystery. Are we just going to keep sacrificing lamb after lamb and hope that's enough? The blood of lambs and the blood of goats and bulls and so forth? No. Hebrews says that will never take away sin. Jesus is the revealer of the mystery of how we get to heaven. How God ultimately planned our salvation. Verse 18 says this, No one has seen God at any time. Only the begotten of God, that's Jesus, who is in the bosom of the Father, sharing the essence of the Father, right? That's what that means. He has explained Him. You want to know about creation versus evolution? You don't want to know about how this life sustains and how this big ball we live on doesn't spin out of uh, existence. You want to know about life and death and what's after death? It's in Jesus. <laughs> you study him. You learn of him. You pour your life into the word of God and you will find the deep mysteries. I have no struggles of creation versus evolution because I know Jesus. Because Colossians 1, John 1, Hebrews 1 all tell me he's the creator. There was nothing before him. He existed before it all. He's a creator. The Bible teaches us all that. And so those mysteries that the world does thousands and thousands of documents just over and over and over. Now we got some comet that passed by 50,000 years ago and they're convinced of it. We weren't even here 50,000 years. The Bible teaches the world is not even that old. So we know that God 
sent his son. His son is the creator. All things exist through him. And so the mysteries are revealed in our Lord Jesus Christ. You want to know the mysteries of the world? Study Jesus. I don't think there's any greater love than, than a Savior that reveals those mysteries to us, right? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9 says this, God made known to us the mysteries of his will. Well, how did he do that? Through his kind intentions, which he purposed in Jesus, in him. He makes known the mysteries of his will. Do you want to know God? Study Jesus. I mean, everybody, oh, I, I just want to know God. God and I have a thing together. But you want to know Jesus? Because Jesus is the revealer of the mystery of God, isn't he? Later in Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 19, he says this, and I pray on my, and pray on my behalf that the utterances, now here's a word, I want to bring this out. This is a word that people want to run with. That the utterances may be given to me in my mouth, an opening in my mouth, to make known the boldness of the mystery of the gospel. And they say, well, there it is. See, there's that, those unknown utterances. You know what the word is? Logos. That's what Paul's saying. Pray that the Lord will give me the word as I speak. Remember, the Bible has not been completed yet. Paul was dependent on God directing him and leading him as he was presenting the gospel to the world and people were getting saved and the message was moving. And so he's giving me, give me utterance, give me a word, give me word that I'll understand this. Not some gibberish that confuses people. Paul says, all knowledge. Well, there's nobody more omniscient than Jesus, right? Even in his earthly ministry, he knew all things. There's times in John 2, he says he wouldn't entrust himself to, to men because he knew all things. He knew all men. He knew everything about them. Even the Pharisees in John 16, 30 come to him and say, we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. And even they confess that in a, in a very backhanded way. Paul says in our own passage that we've been working in back in 1 Corinthians 1.21 that Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. See, chasing wisdom, and that's what they were doing, right? They were into all the modern, in their day, first century uh, psychology and deep thinking and all those things and trying to integrate the message of God with those things, and they were lost. You want to know knowledge? Paul says, Jesus is both the power and the wisdom of God. I love that text. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 9 teaches us, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses all knowledge. You want knowledge? Study Jesus. Be engrossed with him. Be overwhelmed with him. See him in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Watch the flow of the Old Testament to the cross and watch what all comes from the cross from for our behalf and what he continues and how he leads us. The next was his faith, faith that can move mountains. Well, that statement actually comes from Jesus in Mark chapter 11, verse 23. He tells the disciples, if you have faith, you can make this mountain move in. But moving mountains is not a problem with Jesus. He created them. That's not a problem. In fact, the Bible tells us that one day he'll destroy this earth and build a new one. He, he has the power, he's a creator to do all those things. But I think what this points out to me as I study this is Jesus is faithful, right? He's, his faithfulness was the greatest act of love, right? He steps out of heaven, right? We sing songs like this. He steps out of heaven, leaves his throne above, leaves his rightful position, equality with the Father, and comes to die for us and add humanity to himself. He was absolutely faithful. 
the writer of Hebrews says it this way, Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. God has given us as the house of Christ. He's protecting us. He's, he's died for us. He's cleansed his house. He's, he's made us pure. This is what our Lord Jesus Christ does. 2 Thessalonians 3, 3, but the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. What love? I mean, as a father, I, I, I tried to take every measure when I was raising the boys and they were little and, and you know, just because you're, you're a little more sensitive to evil around you when, when you have a family that's younger and dependent upon you. But in reality, as I grew a little wiser and understood the Lord more, I go, what can I do? Like, he can't. And so you learn to pray more and trust God more than try to trust whatever trust you want to put into it, a home defense of something. I'm not telling you not to take care of the possessions God gives you, but ultimately our faith is in the most faithful one, isn't it? The Lord is faithful. Look at verse 3. Paul says, if I give all my possessions to feed the poor. Well, my first thought when I read this was this. There's no one more poor, spiritually speaking, than you and I. The Bible says we were bankrupt. We, we have nothing to offer God. Our own good works are but filthy rags. And so as I thought about this, I began to think about Christ. What has Christ done for the poor? And I, you have to think spiritually first, right? The Bible says in Matthew 20, 28, he gave his life as a ransom for many. 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6 says, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. Wow. I mean, we were destitute, spiritually speaking, and the Lord Jesus ransoms his own life in order to make us spiritually wealthy. I've said this so many times in the pulpit, there's no richer people in the world than people who have their faith in Jesus Christ alone. You're the most wealthy people in the world. You go, well, my checkbook doesn't show it. You have a spiritual checkbook that is so far beyond our imagination. You have a God who's lovingly watching over you and caring for you and ready to open up his storehouse to you as you enter his presence. We're wealthy. But yet God, but Lord Jesus did feed the poor, didn't he? I mean, there's a physical aspect to this. He loves his humanity, right? He created man in his own image. And so time, time and time again, we see the Lord Jesus creating food on the fly, feeding people. And then you can't help but think of this. When I looked at this, I said, well, Lord, I wrote in my Bible, Jesus is the bread of life. He's the bread of life. If you're starving spiritually, if, if, you have, if, you can, if you're sitting here today and you say, I don't, if I die, I don't know where I'm going. Jesus is the bread of life. He'll give you everything you need for eternal life. He'll meet your need. He'll take away your sins. He'll even grant you faith to believe in him and trust in him. He is wealthy. And he gives us everything we need. Notice the next phrase, if I surrender my body to be burned. Well, many martyrs died this way. They were often standing for the truth of salvation that was in Christ alone. And as loving as that act was, they weren't able to save anybody. But Christ's death saves all who believe. Isn't that amazing? And I praise the Lord for those martyrs, particularly during the times of the Reformation. Many men and women were, were burned, stabbed, hung, 
cut in two. All kinds of things happened for people who stood for Jesus Christ. But, but their death couldn't save like Christ's death could. Christ rescues us. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 through 15. When you were dead in your transgressions, that's our spiritual state, dead, right? He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions. Remember, I like alls, and I circle them in my Bible. Do you like alls? Because that's a really good all, isn't it? He just didn't forgive, you know, some of those really bad ones, you know, the bigger list. He forgives all of our transgressions. All of our sin, he forgives them all. See, his death is the greatest of all deaths, right? He canceled out, listen to this, the certificate of debt, debt consisting of degrees against us. I mean, we could spend all morning on that. Just all the things we've ever done were against us. All of that would judge us for all of eternity. And the Lord canceled them out. The Bible says he nailed it to the cross with himself. Praise the Lord. He, he, he's, he's the, I don't know if I want to call him a martyr, but he's, it's the greatest death ever, right? And praise the Lord, he didn't stay dead, right? He showed he could forgive our sins by beating death and being raised from the dead. Colossians chapter 1, Josh Brown and I were talking about this verse not very long ago. Verse 13, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness. <clears throat> I love this passage because the first part of it tells us, 1 Corinthians, I'm in 1 Corinthians 1, 13. The first, the first part of the verse tells us that before we're Christians, before we're saved by the grace alone, right? Through Christ alone, through faith alone. Before that, we belong to the domain of darkness. Now, the world doesn't like this. And a lot of, a lot of people who want to play with Christianity don't even like this. Because what that means is that means I was captured by sin. I, I had no other way. I was, I was dominated completely by darkness, by sin. It owned me. That's who I was. That's who I was identified in. I'm identified as a sinner set apart from God. I'm at, by nature at wrath with God, right? That's what the Bible says. But the verse doesn't end there. The Bible says he transferred us. Don't you love that? It's a rescue mission. He comes into our domain of darkness, this place of our identity because we're born sinners. He comes in there, rescues us in our damned position, right? Eternally damned and judged position, rescues us from that, delivers us. I, I, the terminology is just amazing. Rescues us from the kingdom of his, uh, into his beloved son in whom, listen to this, we have redemption, We've been bought with a price. We're free of all of our slavery and all the past debts and future debts and all of those things. And he forgives our sins. What a verse. <laughs> what a reminder of what the death of the Lord Jesus Christ could do. Where, where my death could not do those or your death. The death of Jesus could do those things. Paul says, look, if you're trying to do all these tongues and prophecies and mysteries and knowledge and all this stuff, but you don't do it in love, it's worthless. What Jesus did is so profitable, isn't it? Oh, the prophet of our Lord. He receives glory and power and honor and majesty, right? And we receive the prophet of eternal life. He gave it all. And we get it all. Isn't that amazing? I've said this so many times. I, I know my sons have heard this. I will live with the Lord Jesus Christ for a bazillion, gazillion years because of what Jesus did. I mean, for eternity, just keep putting zeros behind it forever. 
not because of what I have done. Second thought, we come to the exemplary and unmatched love of Christ. Look at these next set of verses. Again, I'm overwhelmed. I'm going to have to really move fast, so keep writing as I teach here. Love is patient. And I really want to insert Christ in here, his name. Let me say it this way. The love of Christ is patient. The love of Christ is kind. The love of Christ is not jealous. The love of Christ does not brag. And the love of Christ is not arrogant. The love of Christ does not act unbecomingly. The love of Christ does not seek its own. The love of Christ does not provoke. The love of Christ does not take into account wrong suffered. The love of Christ does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but the love of Christ rejoices in truth. The love of Christ bears all things. The love of Christ believes all things. The love of Christ hopes all things. The love of Christ endures all things. The love of Christ never fails. I almost should stop there, almost, right? Just reading it that way. That's how I wrote it out in my notes this week. And I thought, oh, Lord, there's the definition of true love. That's the definition you and I are working at all the time, right? On this life, even as redeemed people, to all of our sins forgiven, there is a progression of sanctification of us growing into the image of Christ, the Bible teaches us. And we work at this all our life, right? Love is patient. Yeah, still working on that. Anybody with me here? Still working on it. But we have a patient Savior, and in his love, he's patient with us, right? But it's a mark of a believer. We're working on these things. I hope we're more patient in our love than we've ever been as we mature in the faith. And so here, this word patient speaks of one who suffers long, right? It's one who's received an unfairly, unfair, costly injury, but is not seeking revenge. Well, that's what Jesus was, right? He was judged unjustly, Peter says in chapter 2, 20 through 24. But yet there was no deceit found in his mouth. He, was, he, he committed no sin. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not utter threats. I mean, who is this? Who can do such things? You, you and I know that when we're pushed... When we're pushed to defend ourselves, we often will. We won't lay our lives down like Jesus did. This is one who is patient. He has a plan. He knows what God sent him to do. Humanly, you see Jesus just patient with all kinds of people. Let me start with one name, Judas. Oh, my goodness. He walked with him for three years, and he gave him the money. You know, in church... You know, administration, we're like pretty careful who's handling the money, right? You know, it's to work in that part of the office or any part of the office. There's, there's high qualifications, right? Jesus goes, here, Judas, keep track of our money. The Bible says he was a thief. You want to talk about patience? He's patient with Peter, right? Peter, always a spokesman. Lord, even if the rest of these won't, I'll die with you. Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows. He's patient and he restores him. The disciples on the night of his death are arguing who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. The night of his death where he's going to die for them, they're not caught up in understanding what he is saying. Well, boy, you know, who's going to be on the left and who's on the right? Who's going to have all the power? How about the nation of Israel? The Bible says Jesus knelt probably on the Mount of Olives, across, looking across the Kindred Valley and wept over the nation of Israel. Oh, if you would have only known 
I would have drawn you to myself like a hen draws her chicks. How about his accusers? How about Pilate? How about Herod? How about Pharisees? He stood there and patiently knowing that God had a plan. He took all those accusations because he has to go to that cross. There's no hope for his elect, you and me, if he doesn't go. He's patient. How about a thief that hung next to him? Matthew says that they're both, both blaspheming him. But then all, in a moment's time, God draws that thief to himself. He patiently waits. He didn't draw him when he was six. He didn't draw him when he was a teenager. He drew him on that cross in his last moments of life. That's what he does sometimes. One minute, let me give me one more name, and it goes on and on. How about Nicodemus? Because you've got a thief on the other end who's living this pagan uh, dregs of society type of life. But then you've got the religious guy. The guy that would say, hey, I've done all this from my youth. Jesus patiently draws him to himself, and we see Nicodemus putting his life on the line and bearing the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible speaks often of God's forbearance. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, The Lord is not slow about his promise, and so, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. I love that. <laughs> He's talking about the elect in this passage. Not wishing for any to perish, but that all would come to repentance. Isn't that amazing? He has the ability, to, he knows when we're going to be saved. He draws us to himself. He has all the, all the praise and promise of all of our salvations, right? We don't take any credit for that. And yet, he exercises patience as he waits for the perfect time to bring you to himself. Many times I've met with older people who are passing away, and they would say this. They say, Pastor, I just wish I would have known Jesus earlier. I said, well, that's a good thing, but that's what, not God's plan. God had a plan to save you now. This is when he brought you to himself. Romans chapter 9, verse 22 tells us that he endures with, with patience for vessels prepared for wrath. Right? For those who reject him, he's patient with the world. Look at the world just mock him. They mock him. Every time they put a documentary out that there's some kind of evolving of this world of something, they mock him. They mock him. And yet the Bible says he's patient with them. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16, Paul has confessed that he is the chief of sinners. This is the great apostle Paul, writer of 13 epistles, planner of countless church. And he says he's the chief of sinners. And then he says this, yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me as the foremost, the, the biggest of sinners, Paul is saying, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who will believe in him for eternal life. Wow. Can you say that? Can you say, Lord, I agree, I am the chief of sinners? You know what that does? That means you're not worried about anybody else. You've looked at your own self and you said, oh God, I deserve the damnation of my sins. But you showed your patience. You did not give me what I deserve and you drew me to yourself. What an amazing, amazing verse that is, isn't it? This is the patience of our God. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says this, Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. He's speaking about Paul. Paul saw the patience of the Lord as working people towards salvation. How about love? Christ's love is kind. Well, these words speak of putting oneself ready to aid somebody else. Ready to aid somebody else. Hebrews chapter 2 teaches this. Uh, to Hebrews chapter 7, Hebrews chapter 9. 
they all teach these truths. And, and I'm about out of time, and so you're going to get a part two next week. <laughs> but, but I want you to be captured by this. I, I want to, next week, I want to start back here. And I, and I want to walk you through the kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just through the book of Hebrews. Chapter after chapter shows this great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. This great prophet and king. The greatest of all. Equal with the Father. Sharing the glory of the Father. All of that stuff is, is taught in the book of Hebrews. And yet, time and time again, shows him as one who laid down his life. One who is sympathetic to you. Sympathetic to what you're going through. He knows how you're suffering. He knows what you deserve and he knows what he gave you. He, he, we'll see next week. He sets your sin in such a way where he forgives it, where he never chooses to bring it up. This is the kindness of our Lord. I want to finish this point and come back to it a little bit next week. But I got thinking about the Trinity. The kindness just goes through the Trinity. Back in that passage in Titus chapter 3, 4 through 8, it says, But when the kindness of our God and Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. So how are you saved? Through the what? The kindness of God. So people, people think that God owes you something. God doesn't owe us anything. If he owes us anything, it's judgment, isn't it? The wages of sin is? So, so that's what we are due. What do we get? Eternal life. That's the verse, right? That's what the verse teaches us. And so everything about our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we see kindness. It is when the kindness of God, our Savior, unique phrase there, when, he, when, when his love shows up, right? And that shows up in the form of Jesus, when it appears. That's, that's how he could most express God's love was in the appearance of Jesus Christ. There's no, there's no greater demonstration of the love of God than the appearance of Jesus Christ. And that happens physically when he came to this earth. And it happens to you when you get saved because the next verse says he saved us. And it's not done on our righteous deeds, right? It's not based on the deeds of righteousness we've done, but according to his mercy. And listen to this. By the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's involved in your salvation. How kind is that? The very Spirit of God. Who God is, the essence of God in the form of the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit, takes up residence with us. When he comes into our life, he washes us clean. Like white as snow. And then the Bible says all this was done, poured out richly through Jesus Christ. The whole Trinity is involved in showing us what true kindness was. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. I love this rhetorical question. Or do you not think, or excuse me, or do not think lightly of the riches of the kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to what? Repentance. You go, how did I repent? Well, I, I, I heard a good sermon, and I just went forward, and I gave my life to the Lord. Well, that's physically what you did, and praise the Lord that all happened. But you know what really happened? God was kind to you. He opened your heart and showed you you were in desperate need of salvation. And I don't know if you walked forward or you prayed a prayer with your mom. That was how I got saved. That was a time where the Lord drew me. I was just sitting with my mom on a Sunday evening and realizing I was a sinner. I don't know what your time was, but all of that time, whatever it was, if you're saved in this room, that was the kindness of God that led you to repent. 
Not you, not some preacher, not some music in the background, not just as I am 47 times so somebody comes down, right? Some of us were raised in those churches. That's not what saved you. The kindness of God saved you. And when the Bible says love is kind, it is a demonstration of the Trinity, isn't it? He's kind, Father, Son, and Spirit. Father planned your salvation. The Spirit executed it. Excuse me, the Son executed it on the cross. The, the Spirit planted it. That's kindness. You and I don't deserve that kind of kindness. Ephesians chapter 5, excuse me, Ephesians 1, 5 says this. He predestined, he predetermined. Don't be scared of that word. Don't let people run you off from that word. It's a great biblical word. He predetermined us as adopted sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. He did this, the verse says, according to the kind intentions of his will. Oh, God is kind to us, isn't he? If you're saved here today, you have tasted the kindness of God. Will somebody remind me where we stopped tomorrow, I mean next Sunday, because I, I, I thought, Lord, I was praying just in the office before. I said, Lord, I could preach this for 50 weeks in a row. There's no bottom to your love. It's unfathomable, right? The love of God, right? We sing that song. We, we sing songs that tell us the love of God. <laughs> If you had all the scrolls and you had all the pens and you had all the ink like that filled the waters of the sea, you cannot describe and be done with the telling people about the love of God. And so when I started out on the sermon, I said, Lord, I'm way in over my head. How am I ever going to finish this? You know, but then the Lord reminded me, you're never going to finish this till you die. This is what you're going to teach till you die. The love and kindness of our God and Savior. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you that we got a good jump on this today. That, Lord, we could spend every waking hour of the rest of our lives, Lord, and never get to the bottom of your love. And so we praise you, we honor you, we worship you, Lord, that you would have such love for such sinners. We thank you that you displayed your kindness in such an astounding way that you revealed your kindness and love fully through your son. He was born of a virgin, placed in that womb of, that, of Mary, separate from her sin. She, he was born of a woman, born under the law, lived a perfect life, and died a perfect death. And then he beat death. He came out of that grave, Lord. And you've given him everything, including our own lives. And so, Lord, when we think about the love of Christ today, we're captured by it. He's beautiful. He's everything we need. And Lord, I pray for the Christians in this room, Lord, first, that we would not seek other things. We would not get drug away by the latest whatever in the religious world. May we be consumed with Christ. He's all we need. He, our rest of our lives couldn't be consumed with because we'll never get to his end. Lord, I pray for those in this room who may not know you. Oh, Lord, open their eyes. Let them see the beauty of Jesus. Lord, let them see that he dies and pays for sin. That Jesus is a kind God who draws people to himself. Lord, we pray that you would do that for your glory. Lord, thank you for a church that allows us to preach this and love this and, and evangelize this. Lord, I pray you'd bless this church. Give us strength to keep running after these things. In Jesus' name, amen.